Hey everybody, how you doing? And welcome to episode number 82 of the John Riley Project. It is Wednesday, October 16th, 2019. We're broadcasting from Poway, California, the city in the country. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Um, we're going to talk about the Democratic debate and uh, we're going to kind of break down some of these things, but we're really going to focus on the perceived front runner, Elizabeth Warren, um, who I think had a pretty rough night. Um, and, and I'm going to kind of break down a lot of different things that went on in the debate, but really looking at it more with a spotlight on Warren, because I think that's where the spotlight needs to be at this stage of the process, because right now she is the rising star and got a whole bunch of comments on her. And so if you love the debates, I love the debates. I love the drama. I love the entertainment. I love the discussion of the issues. I love the branding and the marketing that's going on, the messaging. The whole thing is fascinating to me. So if you love it for any of those reasons, then, yeah, maybe you're going to love this podcast. Um but, um, you know, I talk about this. This is a podcast about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I encourage you to please, you know, follow us on social media. If you're watching on YouTube, hey, here's my weekly reminders. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Uh, that'll make a big difference. And click on the little red bell, and that way you'll get the automatic um, uh, alerts when we post new videos. So that'd be greatly appreciated if you can, you know, follow along and continue in the conversation. You know, this podcast is meant to be a community forum. I welcome input, welcome thoughts. I welcome guests and, and to have very rational, civil, um, deep, um, long-form conversations. And I think that kind of engagement conversation is wonderful. So, um, hey, what's going on in my world? Um, tell you what, uh, um, over the weekend, you know, we released two podcasts and one was the podcast about the elections are rigged. And we got some really nice response on that. And I thought there was some good conversation around some of those issues. I invite you to check out that episode. The elections are rigged. We break down um, gerrymandering and the debate process, which we're going to talk about tonight. Um, and, you know, the way the two parties dominate uh, the landscape, even though there are more independent voters and there are Democrats and there are more independent voters and there are Republicans, you don't ever see independent candidates in the debates, you know. So we go through all of these examples um, in the Elections Are Rigged podcast. That was great. That one went really well. But I'll tell you what, the one that just blew up was the one about the Poway protesters. And that was a great one. We uh, actually, Zeke and I, you know, Zeke is is um, my you know video producer and uh, just a, one of the my key guys in this project. He and I went down to the corner of Poway, excuse me, of Pomerado Road and Twin Peaks Road in the city of Poway, and we interviewed the anti-Trump protesters and then the Trump fans, and it was a fascinating um, conversation. And so, there, if you check out that episode. Um, the Poway protesters, you're going to hear and see the interviews. And I welcome you to really watch that one on YouTube because we got a lot of really excellent video of the, of the protesters out there on the street. There was a, there was a whole lot of good. Um, it was a really a great experience, but a little bit of bad and a little bit of ugly. And so um, I invite you to check out that podcast. It's, it's just over 30 minutes. It's a pretty short one, um, but we've got great f downloads and, and views and minutes viewed on YouTube. So thank you everybody that it's been supporting us on, especially on that episode. 
Um, so anyways, I, I want to go through the Democratic debates. And originally, I was going to break down the whole debate. And I took notes throughout the whole um uh, the, the whole the debate and the debate itself went like two hours and 45 minutes. It was really long. And I took notes all the way through and I realized, my goodness, I don't want to just recreate the debate. So I want to just really focus in on a couple of issues and, and really Elizabeth Warren, you know, Elizabeth Warren, OMG, as I think I should say, you know, she is the candidate. I've commented about this on previous podcasts. She's my least favorite of all of the Democratic candidates. And last night, I thought she was dishonest. I thought she was deceptive. I thought she was ungrateful. I thought she lied. Um, I just thought she had a terrible night, especially from my perspective, because she just confirmed and doubled down on all the things that I criticize her for. Um, and so I, I want to kind of share some of this. And the most classic one that occurred last night, if you did watch the debate, is and it was one of the first questions that was asked. I think maybe it was the second question. The first one was about impeachment. But they, they said to Elizabeth Warren, they said, you know, you have your plan for Medicare for all. Will you raise taxes on the middle class to pay for it? Yes or no. And so, you know, whenever they give you a yes or no question and you don't answer yes or no, then you look evasive. You look dishonest. And she was. And she said, well, I'm going to lower costs and you know, and I'm going to and costs for the uber rich, their costs are going to go up. And, you know, Bernie makes the same argument, but Bernie's honest about it, at least. I mean, Bernie, you know, he, he basically says, you know, we're going to raise taxes, but your premiums are going to be lowered. They're going to be eliminated. And overall, your overall costs are going to go down. But Elizabeth Warren kept getting challenged at this from the moderators, from other candidates. And she just refused to say that the taxes would go up on people. I mean, she came off almost like you remember in the 2016 uh, GOP primaries, Rubio was up there um, when he was like a robot. You know, Um, does Obama know? know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing. And he kept repeating that line over and over again, like some malfunctioning, um, lost in space, you know, danger, Will Robinson. I mean, Warren was doing that as well. And obviously it's calculated. Obviously she wants to avoid a soundbite that can be used against her should she win the nomination and face Trump. She wants to keep avoiding, um, you know, the fact that she wants to raise taxes. And like I said, Bernie at least is honest about it and he presents a plan and and I don't agree with Bernie's plan, but at least I I think Bernie is pure of heart, you know, where Warren being deceptive, dishonest on this, I thought that was something else. And then, you know, they got into the whole uh, discussion of of raising taxes. And then even Biden chimed in and he said, yeah, people between 50 and $75,000, your taxes are going to go up $5,000. How in the hell does Biden know this? I mean, they're only talking about it from a conceptual perspective. I don't really think they've well, maybe some people have broken down the data, but the way they implement single payer, if they do implement it, there's a lot of different variations that it can take. But Biden was really trying to pin that on Warren. And then then you see that you know there's a whole other set of candidates that are more what you'll call the more moderate Democrats. Some people call them the corporate Democrats that don't want single payer, that they want to do um, Medicare for all 
who want it, you know, which is basically public option. And that's, you know, Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar and and Joe Biden. Um, and so it, I and my opinion is, is that if if government is going to get into this game, then I think the public option is the right way to do it, because give people choice. I mean, these are Democrats. They're pro-choice, right? They should give people choice rather than forcing everyone into one system. Um, but that's what Warren wanted to do. And, and basically, she, she wants to make private insurance obsolete. Um, in fact, maybe even illegal, uh, because she wants to put everyone into a single-payer plan. Um, but it's interesting because she claims that your overall costs will go down if you're middle class. But there are some people that are paying very, very little now for their health care insurance because, you know, they're, maybe they're getting it through their employer. Maybe they're in a union and that has negotiated a really good health care plan. Maybe they, um, you know, are uh, a stay-at-home person. And, you know, Andrew Yang brought up the comment about, you know, his wife is a stay-at-home person uh, taking care of an autistic child. So she's not paying, um, you know, for her health care plan. Well, you know, perhaps Yang is, is funding it through his own income source. But there are people that aren't paying at all. And so their taxes are going to go up. There are people that are paying very little right now. Overall, their taxes are going to go up. So the claim that she's making that nobody's costs will go up um, if you're poor or middle class, I think is, is, a, is a false statement, which again – I think is a problem with Warren. I, she's not authentic, um, and and she's really trying to, um, she's really trying to thread a needle by saying certain things and not just being pure and backing up her words, not being honest in her presentation. Um, so I, I just I had a real problem with that, and and you know right now we're dealing with a president who he, he himself is not honest in his presentation. I mean, heck, you talk about health care. President Trump was on 60 Minutes as a candidate prior to being elected in 2016, saying that he wanted universal health care and the government was going to pay for it. And what has he done? None of that. I mean, he he was basically trying to essentially woo a lot of the working class voters that were lining up for Bernie Sanders into his campaign. That was a clear strategy of his. But Trump just outright lied. And and this is the, the concern with Trump is that his character is so poor um, that he makes so many terrible decisions. And, you know, I've documented a lot of that on my podcast previously. I have great objection to President Trump. But we, we should be thinking about who can we replace Trump with, and it's someone that has integrity, that is of high moral character. And I just don't see Elizabeth Warren as being that person. Um, and, you know, just as an aside, I mean, all these proposals, whether it's single payer, Medicare for all, public option, I mean, to me, this is just the wrong approach. I mean, right now, the reason that our healthcare system is so darn expensive is because the government is so deeply involved and the whole system has just been distorted. I mean, the classic example are, are the price of uh, drugs in Medicare Part D for seniors. I mean, the, the way that system was set up, the regulations were built into it so that the prices couldn't 
be renegotiated. So, so competitive products from um, Canada or Mexico or overseas couldn't be imported. So they set up essentially walls to block competition. Um, that's what regulations do, basically, is that they rig markets. They go in with these virtuous, um, you know, they go in, uh, go in with all these virtuous ideals about what these regulations are going to do, but they end up being used by establishment interests to rig the system. Um, so we need to, if we want to lower the price of healthcare, we've got to get to a point where people are shopping on the basis of value, that we're going back to a model where insurance isn't simply a channel to pay for your routine healthcare needs, but insurance does what insurance is supposed to do, which is be a risk management tool. So right now, you know, so-called catastrophic only um medical health care uh, insurance policies are illegal. They were made illegal in Obamacare, which has caused premiums to go up. So again, I think the what 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 the Democrats were all doing is essentially going deeper and deeper into that rabbit hole, which is going to make it's going to either keep prices high or cause them to go higher. I mean, ACIA, Obamacare, prices have gone up. You know, it's called the Affordable Care Act, and healthcare has gotten less affordable. Um, so, um, anyways, yeah. So I, I was just really disappointed in Warren. You know, like the Rubio robot, refusing to acknowledge that taxes were going to go up, but instead, you know, repeating this line over and over again that costs will go down. Now, again, her line is accurate theoretically. But it's definitely not going to be comprehensive and it's not going to apply across the board, not even for the poor and middle class. It won't apply across the board. Okay, so then then the the debate, you know, they switch topics and and we're going to go into the next one, which is this topic about jobs guarantee and automation and universal basic income. And this was a, I mean, if you're an Andrew Yang supporter, and, and I've talked about Andrew Yang. In fact, we did a whole podcast on universal basic income. Um, and by the way, I like Andrew Yang. I think he's a great guy. I think he's got a lot of really good policy ideas. I'm not a fan of universal basic income. But think about Andrew Yang just as an aside. I mean, this this guy has no experience in politics. He has been an entrepreneur and and, and not necessarily a hugely successful entrepreneur. He's had his ups and downs. And when he got into this race, really clinging to the UBI idea, you know, it was kind of a gimmick in a way. It was a unique message, but he has really caught fire. And to think now that the really the the key point of his entire campaign, the thing that he has branded towards um, this universal basic income, this became one of the major questions in the Democratic debate. I mean, it was terrific that he was on stage, but the fact that it was put up there side by side with Bernie's job guarantee program, and they had a debate about that. I mean, tip of the hat to Andrew Yang. I thought that was great. And so, you know, a lot of this is about automation, and, you know, Yang makes the case about how we're going through the fourth industrial revolution, and we've had a great deal of automation, automation being the reason why there's a lot less manufacturing jobs particularly in the Midwest. And then looking into the future, we're going to see more and more automation. And he always talks about the truck drivers, which I think is great. It's a nice little niche group. Um, And he says, you know, as truck drivers become automated, they're going to lose those jobs. All of the companies that service those um, truck drivers, whether they're hotels or diners along the road, they're going to be suffering because of a lack of drivers because eventually these trucks are all going to be automated. 
Again, I, I think he makes a good case for it. And mo- for the, I mean, sure, some of these jobs that have been lost have gone overseas. I mean, that's obvious. But really, it's automation that has been the greatest displacer of it. And it's not just the robotics um, of machinery and, you know, all these arms and levers on the assembly line, but it's also software and other forms of automation that are putting people out of work. And and so when Warren got on uh, to talk about this and, you know, which do you prefer, you know, you, universal basic income or job guarantee program, she pivoted and she said, no, the real problem is not automation. The real problem is our trade policy. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, well, f- first of all, that's wrong. Um, secondly, what she's doing here is to pivot so she can actually start railing on big corporations because, you know, that's her big thing is about tearing people down. And so what she's doing here now with, you know, by attacking the trade policy, what she's doing is she's attacking corporations. Um, and, you know, she went on and on about, you know, companies are no longer loyal to their communities are no longer loyal to their employees. Um, they're only loyal to their bottom line dollar. Well, of course they are. <laughs> I mean, and, and if you look at any employee, they're the same way. An employee is also loyal to their own um, income stream to their own almighty dollar. Um, and, you know, co- uh, employees don't exhibit loyalty to their um, company. I and mean, it's pretty rare these days. And the same thing is true. So, you know, that's the beauty of free trade at will employment. You know, people engage and work together, um, but they're not necessarily, you know, this whole loyalty oath business, that's, that's Trump messaging. And here's Warren doing the same thing as Trump. And and really, you know, she's blaming all the trade uh, policies. I mean, she's, again, falling right in line with Trump. A lot of progressives are the same way, where they are for an America first policy for jobs. Progressives are very much aligned with tariffs, uh, very much aligned um, against expanding uh, trade and making it freer. Um, That's why progressives are against NAFTA, against WTO. They oppose the Trans-Pacific Partnership, just like Trump did, um, because they want to keep jobs in America. I've always thought that's just a really short-sighted position, um, which I'll explain here in a moment. But, um, I mean, here, let's get to it now. So the whole concept of this is that, um, you know, first of all, is there going to be a a robot zombie apocalypse? Well, the answer is no. Um, We're going to continue to have automation for sure. And definitely some people are going to be displaced from jobs. But right now we have more automation than we've ever had and we have more jobs now than we've ever had automation creates more jobs and i know that's counterintuitive but think about it as we take rote manual repetitive types of labor and can automate that that frees up capital that frees up the human mind to be more innovative and new industries are created New industries come forward with a whole slew of jobs. So imagine if you're a stagecoach driver, I guess, would you call it a driver? The, you know, the guy on the top of the stagecoach, you know, um, bringing people to the, to the, uh, the Western United States, those people lost their job when the railroads were created. But 
what happened when the railroads were created. That created an opportunity for tremendous innovation in the movement of goods, and it allowed the economy to become even stronger. And now we have more jobs. We have more gross domestic product because that innovation improved what happened in the economy. Take farming. A long time ago, the farming, agriculture was a tremendous amount of labor that were, was involved in that, in some cases, slave labor, because it was such manual, repetitive, rote work. But then as we saw automation come forward, I mean, heck, when the cotton gin was invented, the whole cotton industry exploded. But as more and more automation has come forward, more machinery getting involved in agriculture, there's been less and less and less jobs. So- You think, oh, my God, automation. But now what's happened is that capital is now being redeployed and we have created whole new industries like the Internet and all the things that have come along with the Internet that have taken our economy and and taken our society and civilization to completely new places, to special places with more jobs, more industry, more innovation, greater quality of life, greater standard of living. So we shouldn't be fearful of automation. We should be embracing it because it provides efficiencies. And so now humans will be deployed on more meaningful work, more thoughtful work, more creative and innovative work rather than being another guy on an assembly line just, you know, cranking through repetitive work over and over and over again. So – um and then the, the other angle to all this is that we can't be fearful of is trade. And this is where we get into these trade deals that Warren is upset about. Um, free trade, when we're trading, we do lose some jobs when some of those jobs are outsourced overseas or to, to Mexico. But overall, we are so much more be- uh, better off because what happens is, is that there are countries, there are companies in other countries that can produce those goods at a far lower price. We end up buying it here in America for less money. That means we have extra money left over in our wallet that we can then spend and invest in other parts of our economy. Um, and that allows our, our, our economy to grow and not just to grow on, on the creation of repetitive kinds of low, um, low value products, but instead to be, to grow in areas of technology and healthcare and lots of great innovation that makes a big difference in the quality of our life. So we have to, I mean, when you're starting to blame these trade deals, we have more people employed now than we ever had. And we should be figuring out ways to get government to get more out of the way so entrepreneurs can innovate. But again, Warren, because she needs to blame the the boogeyman, in this case, it's the corporations, the CEOs, she's not embracing automation as the problem. She's saying the trade deals are the problem, which is wrong. And then she went on to say that, you know, she has a plan called um, accountable capitalism. And if you've read this plan, I mean, it's it's scary because in my opinion, it's a form of fascism. And, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, think about it. Socialism is when government owns the means of production. That's when um, industries are nationalized. But when an industry is 
tightly, tightly controlled by the government, then that's really a form of fascism. I mean, you can look up the definition. I mean, strong regimentation of the economy, authoritarianism, tightly controlled business based on government decree. That's fascism. And that's what Warren is trying to do. Um, So, you know, she wants to make it so the... um, the board of directors is is voted on by the employees, and this is again by government decree. Um, she wants government to regulate how in corporate executives are compensated. Um, you know, she doesn't like the fact that they get stock as part of their compensation, which really is a good thing because then because then executives are motivated um, for you know delivering a return on investment for for those shareholders, which is really their objective. Um, so she wants to prevent and she wants the government to tightly control how these executives are compensated. She wants to control um, how these executives are spending their political contributions. She's essentially diminishing the idea of private ownership. She's diminishing the idea of liberty. I mean, I'm a small business owner. What business is it hers of how I conduct my own business, of how I choose to compensate myself? If I'm building my business and living within my means, it's not her business. If I'm not violating the rights of others, it's not her business. But then the greatest thing of all that makes this so ridiculous is that her plan for accountable capitalism, it it only applies to businesses that are over $1 in revenue. And progressives go on and on, especially Warren, about equality, income inequality, wealth inequality. They want more equality. Well, this is a law that is precisely, or her idea of accountable capitalism is precisely about inequality because it's a set of rules that only applies to one group, but not the other group. It only applies to businesses with revenues of $1 billion or more, but not to businesses with less than $1 billion. So, If you really have a principle, it should be applied to all. But see, this is part of her strategy. And it's similar to Trump. I mean, Trump was very good at uh, in his campaign about having a a boogeyman, having the evil person that he would fight against. And for Trump, it was the Mexicans. It was the Muslims. It was the uh, the media. And, and what Trump did in that was just despicable, was immoral, was disgusting, but it worked. Um, and and it's he always had to have a foil to fight against. Well, Warren's doing the same thing. She, her foil, though, are the rich, are the CEOs, are the corporations. And she wants to do everything she can to tear them down. Um, and we're seeing a lot of this. So again, Warren and Trump playing similar games. Um, and I, I just really object to it. Now, a little bit of a tangent. You hear Bernie talk all the time about democratic socialism and you know how it works in Scandinavia and Sweden and Finland and Denmark and how great it is. If you look at Warren's policies, they're pretty darn similar to Bernie's. But what's interesting is, is if you, if you really go and look at the business um, uh, market in Scandinavia, you're going to find that regulations on businesses are lower than they are in the United States. You're going to see their economic um, freedom index higher than the United States because they make it easier to start a business. They they don't have onerous regulations on businesses that, that weigh them down, that cost them money, that limit their ability to do trade. But what Warren wants is more regulations. 
You know, she wants to go in the opposite direction of Scandinavia. She wants to do the opposite of democratic socialism. That's why I think what she wants is really a form of fascism. It's a form of heavy government authoritarianism. You know, if, like I said, if socialism is the government owning the means of production, fascism is the government tightly controlling the means of production. And that's really what Warren wants to do. So, um, and when you get down to this whole notion of wealth inequality, I, I think it it's important to – well, actually, this topic here was really more about job guarantees and UBI. I think what we need to get to the point here is rather than trying to figure out how do we manage the automation issue, how do we – how do we um, – do job guarantees, which what Bernie wants to do, which I think is a crazy notion. Um, you know, even Andrew Yang called out Bernie about it. You know, a lot of people don't want to work for the federal government. You know, people may end up being assigned a job they don't like or they're not good at. Even Tulsi Gabbard, and I'll give her great credit. In fact, we talked about Tulsi in the Elections Are Rigged podcast. She was threatening to boycott this debate. I'm, I'm really happy she showed up. I thought she did a good job uh, making the case for ending the regime wars, which I think is huge. Um, but even Tulsi brought up the fact that a federal jobs guarantee plan doesn't make any sense because people take pride in their work. They take pride in delivering value. They take pride in um, you know, doing a good job. And if they're being assigned to a job that they don't like, they don't take pride in, that really undermines their quality of life. And in, in my opinion, it undermines their self-esteem. Uh, so Yang called them out about that. What we should be doing, in my opinion, is acknowledging the fact rather than saying we need to give um, universal basic income or a job guarantee. Other people are saying we need to raise the minimum wage. You know, Cory Booker made that comment as well. Um, what we need to do instead is to encourage entrepreneurism, because you know what? You are worth more than the minimum. You are worth more than a thousand dollars a month. You're better than that. Take pride in what you do. Go out there into the marketplace and screw working for the man. Work for yourself. Um, go out and be self-employed. And I think if we did that, if we encourage entrepreneurship, if we encourage self-employment, we would see people not only being able to have a, a, um, uh, a greater amount of income flowing in, but greater control over their life, greater control over their time, greater control over a life-work balance that works for them. I mean, I've been self-employed um, since 2004 when I quit the day job and went 100% into my own gig. So gee whiz, that's been 15 years. Um, and I, I, in fact, I did one of those on, on my uh, closed group Facebook group, the John Riley Project Insiders group. I did a video about that. And by the way, you're invited to join us there. Um, go to the John Riley Project Insiders group. And I post bonus content out there from time to time. We have some really good conversations with some of the more hardcore loyal fans of the podcast. Uh, but yeah, I did a little bit about that, about being self-employed and what it's meant to me in my life. Um, I think people, especially with the economy and the internet and, and all the incredible, uh, the gig economy, I think there's a lot that can be done that can really empower workers to earn more, work less, have greater control of your time, and really, like I said, have a better work-life balance. We need to be encouraging that. We also need to be thinking about ways to prevent people from being trapped in poverty. And we see that now where in many cases, a lot of these public schools are really, you know, very uh, poor areas. They're in poor communities, but they also deliver a poor 
result of poor quality of education because often the learning environment there is not conducive to um, higher education. Um, you know, you see other issues that trap people in poverty, you know, like the whole criminal justice system and the war on drugs. And, you know, when people are felons and they eventually do get out of jail and they've served their time, they carry around that felony like a scarlet letter and they have trouble getting a good job. Um, the, the system traps them in poverty. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about minimum wage and some of the Facebook posts I, I posted at Target. Um, they raised the minimum wage to $15 an hour. That sounds great. But now workers are having their hours cut back to the point where they're actually making less money in their bottom line paycheck uh, because of this. So. I mean, we can go into occupational licenses that prevent people from, you know, starting a career in, in cosmetology. I mean, you got to have a a license from the government just to shampoo people's hair. I mean, it's crazy. So there's all these barriers that are set up that prevent people from being entrepreneurs, that prevent people from getting good jobs. So we need to break that down. So rather than robbing from Peter to pay Paul to give out job guarantees or to give out um, $1,000 a month universal basic income or increasing the minimum wage, we need to free up the economy so people um, that are on the low end of the current income scale can rise up and rise up quickly. And I think we can do that if we um, you know, take advantage of managing the economy. Well, actually, the opposite of that, of not managing it, of allowing the economy to be free. I mean, another great example that traps people on poverty is the cost of housing is just so hugely expensive. It's such a disproportionately high um, fraction of their overall income. Why is housing expensive? Because government keeps regulating and zoning laws that prevent construction. Meanwhile, there's huge demand for housing. So what happens to the price of housing? It goes up. That's Econ 101. And it's greatly caused by the government, whether it's at the state level or at the local level. And even people in communities, the NIMBYs of the world, not my backyard, they're the ones that are pushing the prices of the of the housing for both purchases and rentals. It's going up. So, um, yeah, the... Again, the the whole idea it was of job guarantees, UBI. Again, tip of the hat to Yang for. I mean, his candidacy is so incredibly relevant that he's beginning to drive the agenda in these debates, which is just fantastic. Good for him. But the fact that Warren had to pivot and then, you know, use it as an opportunity to rail on corporations and then wants to implement these fascist policies to more tightly control them, I just thought was just horrible. Um, Okay, and then we get into um, the whole concept of taxes and and wealth inequality, which I kind of alluded to earlier. And here was another deception, a lie that came from um, Elizabeth Warren. And she was saying, well, all I want to do is have a two cent tax um, on the 50 millionth dollar um, and, and beyond. And I'm thinking... Yeah, you're positioning that in such a way that's highly deceptive. Like it seems like it's nothing. But what you're talking about for a lot of these people are millions and millions and millions of dollars that she wants to take away from people, that she wants to tear them down. Um, so I, I just, you know, positioning it as just two cents, it's not two cents. We're talking about millions of dollars. So again, a, a deception, a lie. Um, and, you know, she tries to morally rationalize 
rationalize it. Yeah, we're going to have more, um, you know, early childhood education. We're going to have more money for tuition-free colleges. We're going to have more money for historically black colleges and universities. We're going to cancel student loan debt. Well, yeah, that sounds great. But in order to do that, you have to take the money by force from other people. So besides the fact that she's been dishonest, she's been deceptive, in my opinion, this is immoral, um, what she wants to do, because she wants to do it as a wealth tax. Now, say what you will about a consumption tax, a sales tax. Um, you know, a, a Yang talks about the value-added tax, which is a form of a consumption tax, which, by the way, is hidden, and that's dangerous. So you have consumption taxes that you really pay when you buy things. Then you have income taxes that you, have, you pay when you earn but a wealth tax, a whole other, um, a whole other category. This is where they, your savings is taxed. This is money that you've already earned and paid taxes on that income, and it's your nest egg that you're building. And they, she wants to be able to tear that apart and take it part of that away. And she says, "Oh, it's only you know two cents," which really she's saying it's between two and three percent a year. But for a lot of people, just being able to get a return on investment of of at least two to three percent on top of um, inflation, it can be difficult at times. So you're going to see these nest eggs reduce. And if you look at her economic advisors for her wealth tax, that's their objective: is to reduce the amount of wealth that some people have. And it's it's the it's a failed idea because it's the concept of a fixed pie, um, you know, a, a fixed sum where. We have a limited amount of money, and there's only so much money to go around. So we have to take from some to give to others. But that's not the way the economy works. Wealth is created. Wealth is created through um, innovation, through a, um, adding value. People are taking um, raw material and transforming that into amazing products that transform the you know the way of uh, our quality of life and improve our lives. People are able to create value, create wealth, and so we need to be thinking about ways that we can rise up. We can lift up those that are on the bottom rather than tearing down the ones at the top so the people at the bottom can come up. And, you know, the whole argument of this is, is, well, you're trying to protect billionaires. Well, you know, of course, I'm not a billionaire. I mean, (laughs) it's laughable to even put my name and the word billionaire in the same sentence. But if, if it's wrong to do this, to, to, erode people's savings and to take money away from them. If it's wrong to do that to a a poor person or a middle-class person, how is it suddenly morally right, morally justified to do it to a rich person? See, again, what she's doing, she's playing this game of having the boogeyman, having this evil person, this foil, and she wants to tear them down. And I just find that just so morally objectionable. Um, and and then she was she was encouraging other people on the stage. How come you don't believe in the wealth tax? Oh my God, I can't think you believe in it. Well, maybe they don't believe in it because of you know, hello, unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what this podcast is all about. And if you're a supporter of liberty, if you're a supporter of having a right to your own life, which means you can manage your life and live your life um, according to your own values and pursue your own happiness. That means that 
what you earn, you keep because it's yours. You earned it. Um, but she wants to erode that and take it away. And, and I just I just have a problem with that. Um, and then, you know, even other other candidates do the same thing. I mean, Bernie Sanders has said billionaires shouldn't exist. And and, you know, his partner, AOC, um, she said that being a billionaire is immoral. I'm thinking. What is happening? Because America has always represented this land of opportunity, this land where people can come and seek a better life, where fortunes are made because of the innovation that happens in the United States. That whole concept um, is just being torn down by these collectivists, by these socialists to really oppress individual rights. And I just have a big problem with that. And and the and Bernie, at least does it from the perspective of from his own angle he feels he's morally pure in the way he's going about it um he's a true believer in what he's doing but elizabeth warren just just feels like she just wants to get the bad guy you know she just wants to go after um this small minority um and, and you know a lot of people are supportive of her they're like yeah yeah you know let's get them um and i it's just you know, it, it, she's trying to strike up a fervor. And, you know, you see that when groups are persecuted in various countries and you're thinking, oh, yeah, the billionaires are not going to be persecuted. Well, you know what? If stealing is wrong, then it's wrong. I mean, the fact that you apply it to some groups and not to others is just ridiculous. So this whole concept of a wealth tax, I mean, I just have a problem with it. Now, of course, Bernie, you know, he goes on to say, we got to make the rich pay their fair share. And I'm thinking, what is a fair share? You ever notice that it's never really defined what's fair? It's never really defined what their share is. It's purposely undefined. It's purposely subjective. Well, how do you decide what's fair? I mean, everyone has their own different uh, perception of what fair should be. So whenever I hear that, I always just immediately you know, discount it. Um, that's just a... Um, uh, you know, a keyword, you know, a, a virtue signaling that we need to go after these other people so we can get more stuff. And again, I, I just have a problem with that. But then the greatest part that happened is Beto O'Rourke, um, you know, Beto from El, El Paso, who's an interesting character in his own way. But he actually said about Warren, she, he says, you're more focused on being punitive. And I went, oh, my God, finally, someone else on the stage sees it the same way because Beto saw it that rather than her trying to lift people up, she, he noticed that Warren was driven to tear people down. He wants, he said, she, she's she's being punitive. Um, and Warren, of course, she was shocked. She was mortified that she could be thought of as punitive, which seemed like a fake outrage to me. And then she immediately pivoted to her, you did not build that speech. And maybe you're familiar with it. It's something that she uh, talked about before she was elected senator. And then President Obama um, gave his own version of it, I think probably in 2012. And, you know, this is the whole idea that a business owner um, didn't really build that company. That company was built on the backs of his employees. It was built on the backs of taxpayers that paid for the roads, that paid for the education for the employees. You know, it's the whole kind of it takes a village kind of angle. Um, but in my opinion, when you, you if you really break down that message, it's a very, very calculated comment to prop up collectivist policies and diminish individuals. Um, so 
Because the implication is, is that the business leader is freeloading off the backs of so many other people, whether they're vendors or um, employees or taxpayers. It makes it seem like the business owner is freeloading off of them when, in fact, the business owner is paying for everything. They're paying for the employees, for their, for their, um, uh, their compensation. They're paying taxes. I mean, the wealthy are the ones that pay a, a tremendous amount of tax, definitely in total dollars. And up until recently, we could say always uh, in higher percentages. And I think that point can be arguable. There's been a graph that's been thrown around the Internet last week or so. Um, but to say that they don't pay is just insane. They do. And, and you think about a, a business that has vehicles and a fleet of trucks. They're paying gas taxes that fund those roads. They're paying corporate taxes that fund fund um, infrastructure. They're paying for um, payroll taxes that pay for the Medicare and Social Security of those employees. They're paying the unemployment insurance for people to get laid off. So to imply that these business owners are freeloaders is ridiculous because they're paying for it. That's why, again, what warned is deceptive. She's not honest when she goes about this. And so what this whole angle of you, if you did not build that, what it really is, is that if if they can position it in such a way that the money that you've earned, you really don't deserve it, then they can figure out a way to say, well, then it's really not yours. So we can morally justify to take it away because that's the whole angle of this. Um, so, I mean, in my opinion, a leader of a business that has grown should take credit because a lot of times it's based on their vision, their policies. I mean, heck, even the liberals do this in government when when it happens in government. So remember after um, the economic collapse, um, they they blamed Bush. um, And again, we can break that down. But they definitely praised Obama. Obama saved America from the Depression. They're essentially saying that Obama built that, that Obama should take credit for bringing the United States economy out of the tank. Um, so rather than saying, well, no, Obama didn't build that, the the CEOs and the middle management and the frontline workers did that and the customers did that, they don't say that. Um, they only say it when it applies to private industry, not when it applies to the public sphere. So um, it's crazy. Um, I think we... It just, again, we had to quit thinking of the business people as the villains. Now, of course, not every one of them is pure of heart. Some are better than others. But just to have a sweeping um, uh, statements that really castigate them, um, I, I just think is wrong. It's immoral. It's it's um, it's collectivist thinking. It's, you know, a applying um a, a single trait to an entire group. Um, you know, we should really be judging individuals, not groups. I mean, f- frankly, I thought that's what, I mean, we can digress and go down the, the topic of, of race-related issues, et cetera, et cetera. We, you know, these stereotypes um, are false uh, because individuals are all different. Um, so, um, but, you know, she goes on to say, it was interesting in the debate, Warren said, show me your budget, show me your tax plan, and I'll show you, show you your values. And then, People were calling her out and they were saying, you don't have a tax plan because she won't define how she's going to pay for her Medicare for all plan. She won't admit the taxes are going to go up. So, again, deceptive. Um, Now, just as an aside, as it applies to 
income inequality or wealth inequality, I'm, I'm going to say another very counterintuitive point. And this, this will shock some people, I'm sure. Inequality is a wonderful thing. Okay, you got that? Okay, now let me break it down. All right. We're all different. We all have different skills, different interests, different um, talents. Um, some of you want to pursue a career as a pilot. Some want to be a doctor. Some would like to be a teacher. Some would like to be an artist. Other people would like to go into business. We all have different skills. We're all going to earn different amounts of money. That The inequality of income is a reflection of freedom. It's a feature of freedom, not a bug. That's a good thing that we have inequality. Um, and the, the gap that exists, people will say, oh, my God, wealth inequality is, is greater than it's ever been. The fact that your, your neighbor who's a dentist earns more than you is not a problem. The fact that there's this gap, this difference of you know, number of dollars they earn per year, year that's different than yours, that's not the problem. Now, there is a problem. There is a problem when systems are set up that rig the game for the rich and for certain corporate entities where regulations have been used to warp and distort the playing field so they can have um, no-bid contracts. They can have uh, they, uh, regulations that block competitors. They can have regulations that make it very difficult for entrepreneurs and competitors to, to enter into their marketplace. That is damaging. That's a problem. Uh, rigging the game for the rich. And at the same time, you know, there are legitimate problems in, tr- in government policies that trap people in poverty. So those are real issues. But the fact that some people earn more than others, that there is an inequality in wealth or an inequality in income, that's not the problem. Um, that really should be something that's embraced. Um, now, it is an interesting thing because um, – while you hear our friends on the left always demanding equality, look at look at um, Warren's policy, her accountable capitalism. That's inequality under the law. It's a set of rules that only apply to businesses that have over one billion in revenue, but not less. That's inequality. So she's putting forward those kinds of policies. She's also putting forward policies that tax the rich at a much higher rate than others. That's the progressive income tax, or in this case, wealth tax. That's also inequality, different rules for different people. Um, So I just, again, find this so objectionable. Um, So her plan is about tearing people down. Equality does have a a purpose, and it's really where it matters is equality under the law, that we have the same rights. We have equal rights. Um, You know, the the, people of every sexual orientation has the same right. People of every race has the same right, that we have equality of rights. We're equal under the law. We're equal before a judge. That is the kind of equality that makes sense. Um, so, but you always hear these cases of income inequality brought forward, and Warren is she's punitive. I mean, that's her whole thing is to tear people down. Then they went to um, big tech in the debate, and you know, here we're talking about Google and Facebook and Twitter and all the big social media companies, and. You know, Warren's out there front and center. We need to break them up. We need to break these companies up. They got too much power. And she wants to have campaign finance laws um, to make sure that, you know, the money that they spend isn't going to the campaigns. And she's pledging not to take any money from Big Pharma or any of the tech companies or Wall Street. Um, You know what? 
what this is proving is, is that the power of government has gotten to be so big. Government has such massive central planning control of the economy that, of course, it attracts people to try to influence it and to try to tilt the playing field. That's what lobbyists do, is they try to implement regulations that rig it in their favor. And that's why the money in politics is there. So she she wants to essentially make that worse. Um, She wants to have government have even more control over businesses, which is just going to invite more and more corruption of bribery of businesses that are going to try to buy their way through. And she's going to try to block them, but they're always going to find a way. Um, So in my opinion, she's approaching this completely wrong. Um, And then, you know, talking about deception, she went on and again, they were talking about big tech and. She said, well, you think about Walmart, and Walmart represents about 8% of the retail sales in brick and mortar, but Amazon is 49% of online sales. And, you know, essentially implying that Amazon is just way too powerful of a a company. They're approaching monopoly status. And I'm thinking, did you listen to what I just said and what she said? It was purposely deceptive. She was saying she was trying to compare Walmart at 8% and Amazon at 49%. But she said that Walmart has 8% of the brick and mortar business for traditional retail, and Amazon has 49% of the online retail. But you know what? If you look at all retail across the board, Amazon has only 5%. Now, 5% is still a lot, but it's a hell of a lot less than 49 It's actually less than Walmart. So she, again, being deceptive, she's throwing up the number 49 versus eight to imply that the big technologies are disproportionately powerful. But in this case, they're actually less powerful than the brick and mortar. So, um, you know, she, she's using that kind of language, that kind of rhetoric, that kind of deception to, um, to essentially justify breaking up these companies. Um, and I, again, I have a real problem with that. So, I mean, every one of these other, you know, people on the stage, they, they commented on it as well. And, you know, Andrew Yang, you know, he, he's going on about saying these these tech companies, it's our property and we should get a slice of every Facebook ad, of every Google search. And I'm thinking, hey, Yang, Andrew Yang, man, I love you. But you know what? Those are privately held companies. It's not our property. We don't deserve a slice of every Facebook ad or every Google ad. Uh, But, of course, he wants essentially the people to own the means of production. And there's a word for that, which we've gone over. Um, So, um, again, you see these kinds of policies coming forward. But, you know, in, in every one of these cases, people are demanding more and more regulation. But in my opinion, that's what creates the problem. Another great example is Bernie was up there and he was talking about, we have a rigged economy. And, and you know, he's right. The economy is rigged. But he goes, six banks have the assets of half the GDP of the United States. Well, I, I, I haven't fact-checked him on that, but let's take that to be true. But you know why? I mean, take these policies, I think, was it Dodd-Frank, the one that reformed the banks after the uh, the recession? Um, if I recall, it was Dodd-Frank. But that was the one that put all these onerous regulations on banks. And what we saw is that the number of community banks greatly diminished. And then established banks by, like Bank of America and Wells Fargo, they were extra fortified uh, because they didn't have to compete as much with these local community banks. And you wonder why it consolidates 
Well, it's because they make it so darn difficult for entrepreneurs to compete, for small business to compete, for even middle-sized business to compete because of the onerous regulatory state. So, and then he goes on, yeah, 10 media companies control what people consume and, um, and you talked about the consolidation of farms and everything else. And again, I, you even look at, look at the, like the trade policies that are being enacted by Trump now. I mean, that again, that's more regulatory power. There's these tariffs that are going in and it's been crushing farmers. Many farmers have gone out of business. Some of them are being propped up by Trump's version of socialism to take the tax dollars that Americans are paying for those tariffs and redirecting them to the farmers, which is just insane. Um, but again, a lot of this consolidation is because they make it so damn hard to allow entrepreneurs to be free and to compete uh, because of the regulatory state. And so Bernie called it, you know, uh, I can't remember the word he used, but some kind of a rigged capitalism or some kind of a distortion of capitalism, but it's not, it's cronyism. These are companies that are using government as a tool to rig the system, tilt the playing field, block competitors, in some cases make competitors illegal, um, and that's what's happening. Um, So it was also funny in this little bit, um, Kamala Harris and – you know, bless her, she she had a great first debate, but since then she's been struggling and she just – she really is trying hard, but she just can't get traction. And in these debates, you look at her and she tries these one-liners and they kind of have like modest applause. And it just seems like she's trying too hard at times. Um, and some, and other times she just looked tired, a little bit worn out. I was kind of feeling sorry for her, but she was making this big deal about, um, and challenging Elizabeth Warren that what we need to do is to shut down president Trump's Twitter handle. I'm thinking, oh, my God, what, what happened to free speech in this country? Um, so she and then she went on to say that we need to shut down Twitter, like the whole company. I'm like, what is going on? You know, this is a this is a, a case where we used to be a, a an environment where we encourage competitors. And now the, what they're talking about is breaking them up, shutting them down uh, again, overly controlled um, government um Power and control over business. It's a form of fascism is what it is. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was just something. And and then the, the funny thing is, is that, you know, Julian Castro got up there and he said, you know, we need to um, um, update, you know, kind of the way we see monopolies and, and have more power to break up these monopolies. But then meanwhile, during this whole debate, they're talking about ways to create monopolies, like, for example, nationalizing medical or nationalizing health care insurance. And, and there's other cases. I mean, Bernie has talked about nationalizing other industries as well, as particularly in the energy sector. sector. So we're seeing cases where they're complaining about um, too much power, too much control, but then they demand more and more control, but only if they get to control it. Um, so... You know, we see all this at various tiers amongst the Democrats, but this deception, this dishonesty to me was particularly vile with um, Elizabeth Warren. So, you know, like I said, the the way to get out of this is that, you know, people say we need to get money out of politics, right? That sounds good on the surface, but fundamentally it's an un-American idea because we have the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That means 
we can control our lives. So if we want to give money to a charity, we want to give money to a business, we want to give money to our kids, we want to give money to a politician because we happen to like what they're saying, or who are they to tell us what we can and cannot do with our money? So um, if we try to forcibly get money out of politics, that violates our rights. What we should do, in my opinion, is to get politics out of money. And this is what I alluded to earlier. Because government has such incredible control over the economy, it's always going to invite those people that want to use government as a tool to set up a system where they get an exemption or their competitor has a more difficult challenge. If they're going to try to set it up where they can get a no-bid contract like Halliburton did during the Iraq War, they're going to try to set up the game. They're going to play the game. Um, and all of that regulatory state is so complex. They find loopholes. Laws are written that have the loopholes in them so they can sneak through. The whole system is built that way. What we need to do is take away the power of government to so tightly control the economy and just let entrepreneurs be free. And then those big businesses can no longer force people to buy from them like Amer- like the ACA did, Obamacare. Um, they can no longer rig the market. They'd actually have to go out there and compete for business. That's what the America is based on, based on those values of competition and liberty. Um, so I, I think they're, they're going about it completely wrong. But Warren especially trying to um, just double and triple down on the precisely wrong policy. So I told you in the beginning, I don't like Elizabeth Warren. I hope I'm making my case. So then we went a little further and and then the moderators were talking about, you know, what are the differences between you and your other uh, uh, competitors? You know, there's big differences between the Democrats and Trump, but the differences amongst the Democrats on the stage maybe might be slight. And you know, different people talked about different things. And um, Elizabeth Warren, well, well, first of all, Joe Biden got up there and he says, well, I'm the only person that can get things done. You know, and I, I was uh, um, the one that helped, uh, um, you know, I think there was like an assault weapons ban that he got uh, done in the 80s. And then he talked about a lot of the things he did with Obama, you know, with um, ACA and with TARP. And, and you know, so, I mean, Biden was trying to make his case. And and then Bernie, to his credit, I, again, I, I think Bernie is a he comes from a good spot. He's pure of heart. And he says, well, yeah, uh, Joe, you did get a lot of things done, like the Iraq war, um, like NAFTA. You know, again, remember, the progressives don't like free trade. They're aligned with Trump on that. Um, they both Trump and Bernie both do not like NAFTA, do not like WTO. So, yeah, uh, you know. Vice President Biden, you got us NAFTA and and you got us these, um, you know, he went on and on. He called Biden to task, which was good. But then when it went to Warren getting things done, she said, well, you know, I was the one that, you know, got this Consumer uh, Protection Bureau set up um, and, you know, so we can go after those banks and everything else. And then Joe Biden interjected and he said, well, you know, Elizabeth, I, I was vice president at the time and I was actually out there lobbying senators to vote in your favor. I was actually helping you get that done. Um, I was out there um, on, you know, on the floor. And then Elizabeth Warren then conceded and she says, well, well, yeah, um, I'd like to thank, um, you know, President Obama and and other people that helped him, blah, blah, blah. But purposely did not thank Biden. And it was so obvious. And it was such a just a 
like a poke in the eye to Biden. I mean, the whole crowd went, ooh, you know, because she came off like she was ungrateful. I mean, Biden just made his case that he was helping her and then she couldn't even say thank you, um, which was crazy. Um, and, And Biden had offered her a compliment and she said, thanks for that. But she can't be reciprocal in this. So, again, she's dishonest deceptive. She lies. She's ungrateful. She's immoral. I mean, I can go on and on. Um, so it, it was, it was crazy. Um, then I don't know what else going on. I mean, I, I thought Mayor Pete had a great event. He was out there really strongly making his cases and his whole angle is, is that, you know, he's more of the pragmatic liberal, a pragmatic liberal, the pragmatic Democrat really trying to, um, not not try to bite, bite off on the whole enchilada. Rather than he wants to take it incrementally and and have more modest goals because he he figures if you try to get it all, if you try to have Medicare for all rather than just Medicare for um, those who want it, you may not get anything, um, and we may end up losing to Trump. And the and I I think there's some that's a valid point that he's trying to make. And so it was interesting to see this dynamic where you had, um. Klobuchar and Buttigieg lined up together, really providing a opposing force with Biden and Elizabeth Warren. In many ways, I think Klobuchar and Buttigieg, they're they're like I, I was joking about this on Facebook today. They have like a vulture strategy. They're basically waiting for Joe Biden to you know spontaneously combust like the drummer on Spinal Tap. You know they're waiting for. Biden to implode. And then they're going to try to get into that lane and take that more centrist, that more moderate position. Um, so it, it, it was it was interesting to see how this whole thing went out last night. It was fascinating uh, dialogue. OK, then we got into the whole opioids crisis. And, um, you know, you know, was on the stage was Tom Steyer, you know, the Californian, the, the one he, that put up the uh, impeach uh, Trump um, program. And now he eventually got into the race in, in many ways, reminded me of Steve Voss when he was trying to get um, uh, Betty Rexford out a city council in Poway. And then Steve Voss ended up running for city council. Uh, same kind of thing that Steyer is doing, but on a much higher level. And. You know, for the most part, Steyer was just like an interesting prop, like a like a lamp on a bedside table. Um, But he actually made a great point when they were talking about, um, you know, this whole notion of the opioid crisis. And he said, first of all, you got to treat it as a health crisis. And a lot of other people on the stage said the same thing. But then he went on to say the government is broken. The corporations have bought it. And I was like, yes, that's what I've been saying. And I think a lot of the the progressives are really saying the same thing. Um, And they said drug companies have bought the government. Gun gun companies have bought the government. And so what they're trying to do, you know, the progressives, they're probably trying to play a game of whack-a-mole. You know, so when the government, when the gun companies come up to try to buy the government, they want to knock the gun companies down. And then when the drug companies come up to buy the government, they want to knock down the drug companies. Well, maybe the fact is, is that they're all um, enticed by all the power that government has. Maybe that's the real core problem. Um, so, I, I mean, I Steyer alluded to that, and I, I thought that was great. Um, Yang, of course, he he said this is capitalism run amok. You know, when he's talking about the opioid crisis, because they see it as these evil big pharma, you know, passing out all these pills, and there was definitely some of that. But 
think about it, the perverse incentives that were set up by government, where you've got policies where the government is subsidizing the medicines. And so people, when they're buying it, they're not really paying full value for it because that's too expensive. And so they only pay a fraction of it. So then it becomes easier um, for people uh, to buy. And then at the same time, government is making other uh, medicine, like, for example, marijuana, illegal in many places. In fact, it's still illegal at the federal level. That could be an alternative pain medication for these people so that they aren't addicted to opioids, but instead could be um, getting pain relief from a non-addictive um, uh, medicine. So this isn't capitalism run amok. I mean, this is cronyism. This is a, a regulatory power that has gone way too far and has created these distortions and perverse incentives. That's what this is. Um, you know, and, and, and then they start talking about we got to put the big pharma executives in jail. And, and again, that's more the boogeyman. Um, now, granted, big pharma, in my opinion, needs to be held accountable um, for the side effects of their medicine. You know, the, the terrible addictiveness of this. They need to be held accountable um, for that. But, you know, Bernie goes on. He says, oh, we need to take a deep breath on opioids. And, um, you know, they knew they were selling a product that was highly addictive. Um, but the top 10 made $69 billion in profit. This is unfettered capitalism. And I'm thinking to myself, no, man, this is not capitalism. This is a Frankenstein. It's 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 cronyism. It's a distortion because of what the government does. Um, I mean, heck, even to bring new medicines to the table to get approval for new medicines is so expensive and so time consuming. And the existing establishment, big pharma, love that because it makes it harder for competitors to enter the market. Um, so. The, and, 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 when, and then they end up giving them, you know, monopoly status um, over these meds for a period of time. And then it incentivizes them to charge so much for these things. So the whole thing is just so friggin distorted. And it's anything but, you know, really free market capitalism. It's this dinosaur, this not dinosaur, it's a Frankenstein. So. Um, yeah, I mean, what they need to do is just quit subsidizing these companies, quit encouraging them, uh, make it easier to get non-addictive pain meds, um, make it easier for new medicine to be approved. You know, I'll tell you my crazy experience with Vicodin. Vicodin is very addictive. And this was probably, what was it, 2002, I think it was. And I, at the time, was living in, in the Garden Road community of Poway. And it was around Christmas. And we hung up our Christmas lights on our house. And I had created this huge star on our house that was lit up. And when you were driving into our neighborhood, and it was called Sycamore Creek in, in Poway, you just would see this huge star. It was cool. Um, and I was really proud of it. And I remember one day I, I noticed that a couple of the light bulbs were out and I had to go back up onto the roof and change the light bulbs. Well, as I was coming down the ladder from, you know, from, from uh, right above the garage, the ladder, you know, when it goes up, click, 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 well, it didn't secure on that final click. And so when I stepped on the ladder from the top of the garage, the whole ladder went and I fell off my roof, landed on the concrete driveway on my shoulder and on my head. And I mean, honestly, I'm lucky to be here. Um, and if you want to take shots at me saying that my head got whacked out and by all means, you know, zing me one, but, um, I almost died. I was in the hospital for like a week and I was out of work for three months. I mean, it was really serious. But as I was recovering from that, I was on Vicodin and I was taking it multiple times a day and it was extremely helpful for me. 
in the beginning. But then as my pain was minimized, um, I could still, I felt my my body craving that Vicodin and I could sense it. I was self-aware and I was, you know, lucky enough to know how to keep it at arm's distance. And then I stopped taking it and I actually, I weaned my way off of it. Um, but that was, that in and of itself was pretty scary. It's extremely addictive. So this opioid crisis is a serious crisis in America. Um, and we need to do things to, to address it. But I think the first thing that can be done Number one, treat it like a health addiction problem rather than a criminal issue. But then secondly, I think we need to find non-addictive pain medication to be a substitute for these opioids. And that's how we're going to eventually wean people off of this. Um, all right. Uh, then, okay. Again, I'm, I'm railing on Warren a lot here. I, you know, this is a smaller issue, but it's legitimate. It's funny. They, they started talking about the whole Syrian uh, issue that's going on right now with the Kurds and, and the outrage of Trump and, and the fact that you know, he pulled the troops out. And now the Kurds are running for their lives. And you know, every Democrat up there on the stage was mortified by this. Um, even Tulsi Gabbard was to a degree. And you know, she's the anti-regime war person. But then um, and, and let me just digress on Tulsi. You know, she made some interesting points. She said that um, because she is against the regime wars, the New York Times was calling her out as an asset for Russia. And it was despicable. It was just ridiculous. I mean, it's there is the war culture is so pervasive throughout government. I mean, Eisenhower warned against the military industrial complex. So um, for Tulsi, she was up there and she's you know really just trying to have peace with the Middle East. You know, she wants to end America's involvement in these regime change wars. She wants to end the sanctions, but then she's called out as some kind of a traitor, which was just ridiculous. And then, you know, it shifted to Warren and Warren really didn't say anything of substance. You know, she says she wants to get out, but we've got to get out in the right way. Well, that's the line we've been hearing for from Bush. We heard it from Obama. We want to get out. We want to get out the right way. I mean, what that really means is, is that she wants to stay for some indefinite period of time. And that's our problem. I mean, we, we need candidates that says we need to get out of the Middle East. Our presence there is costing us valuable lives. It's costing the lives of innocent civilians that live in the Middle East, um, as well as the lives of Americans that are, um, that are out there. It's costing a huge amount of money um, that is creating massive debt, is creating more burdens on taxpayers, and it's creating tremendous chaos in our foreign policy. And that's part of the pickle that's going on right now. That there are so many actors involved in the Syrians, uh, Kurd, Turkish, the Chinese, the Russians. I mean, Iran has influence there. It's we're in a, such a crazy situation that it seems like no matter what we do, we're going to have some unintended con consequence that's going to harm someone else. You know, someone that's likely an innocent bystander in this whole thing. So um, I credit Tulsi for calling that out, but just really disappointed in Warren for really not having anything significant to offer on this point. You know, because she's more interested in the domestic issues. She's more interested in tearing down the boogeyman. Um, and I think I, I really wish we would have heard more from her on that point. Uh, Mayor Pete, I thought, you know, was very assertive on this. You know, he was really defending the honor of American soldiers. You can tell that he was prepared for this. He knew he was going to have an opportunity to go up against Tulsi because Tulsi's position um, as anti-war is very, very clear. And 
you know, Mayor Pete, he has credentials. He's a, a veteran. Um, but, you know, so is Tulsi. She also served um, in the Army. Um, so anyways, I thought if, if you're if you're a defender of our foreign policy, I think Mayor Pete um, really stood strong for that, for the honor of our soldiers and um, and and our foreign policy. Um I applauded Mayor Pete's conviction. I didn't agree with the policy he was putting forward. Um, and there was a couple other interesting lines when they were talking about foreign policy. Julian Castro made a really great line. He said, it, it's kind of ironic that, you know, we've got Trump um, putting children in cages along the United States-Mexican border, but at the same time, his policies are, re- are um, leading to the release of ISIS prisoners in the Middle East. So we're imprisoning children on our border and then ISIS prisoners are getting out. I mean, which just is shows the folly of both policies. Um, so it, it's just nuts. Um, and then Booker actually made a good comment as well. And he called out Trump and said, you know, Trump, you keep talking about how you want to end the re- wars in the Middle East. But instead, you just sent 2000 troops to Saudi Arabia. And Booker, you're right, man, right on target there. Um, you know, Booker went on to say it's like our moral leadership is turned into a dumpster fire with President Trump. And he's right. Um, but really, I mean, what the whole notion of what President Trump did in the Syrian situation is he didn't. He says he wants to bring the troops home, but the troops that he moved that allowed Turkey to come in and, and, and attack the Kurds, he didn't bring them home. He just moved them to another section of Syria and then sent 2,000 more to Saudi Arabia. So, you know, Justin Amash, who someone I've done multiple podcasts about, he's a former Republican, an independent congressman from the state of Michigan. He was calling out Trump for this very reason, that it's a lie that he wants to get out of these Middle East wars because he keeps increasing our troop levels there and the whole notion of what how we rationalize moving the troops to allow turkey to invade the or to attack the kurds was also based on a lie so again i I think amash is a great guy and some people are saying he may run for president in 2020 um but on the libertarian party ticket i'm intrigued by that um at any rate we need to keep him in washington dc so hopefully at minimum he's able to retain his congressional seat although it will be difficult for him And then speaking of other presidential candidates, this is just a crazy tangent, but I had heard that Bloomberg is now thinking about he may throw his hat in the ring. And you know what? With the performance of these Democrats in that debate last night, you know, their top candidates have weaknesses, have serious weaknesses. I'm sure Bloomberg sees that. So there may be a white knight that comes in. You know, people have said maybe Hillary's going to enter the picture. This is this whole thing is fascinating. It's like a, a soap opera, the way this whole thing plays out. Um. Oh yeah, and old Joe was up there fear mongering. You know, uh, if President Bush stays in in uh, in office, NATO is going to die. ISIS is going to attack us in America, and uh, I'm just the whole thing is just nuts. So. I think this whole the whole situation, I mean, this has been forecasted. You know, our our true policy is to steer clear of permanent alliance with any portion of the foreign world. That was in George Washington's farewell address to us. The inaugural pledge from Thomas Jefferson was no less clear. Peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all, entangling alliances with none. And that's what we've gotten into this. This thing in the Middle East has turned into a cluster. There's so many entangled uh, alliances. Like I said, there's so many actors on the stage. Whatever move we make 
creates a ripple effect that ends up creating unintended consequences for someone else that often come back and bite us in the ass. So the problem there is just it, we the our solution there is addition by subtraction. It is to bring the troops home. That has to be the policy there. And sadly, Every one of these Democrats, maybe with the exception of Tulsi, wants to keep our troops in the Middle East. Remember, for however long, when Bush was president, they were demanding these wars to end. Then when their guy gets involved, when, uh, when Obama was president, you know, the Afghan war expanded. The Iraq war was extended. Um, and then drone bombs all over the place in the Middle East. And yet they never objected. Um, and now, just because they're anti-Trump, now they're not really even calling for the troops to come home. So it's just really sad. Um, so anyways, you know, the debate went on. They, they talked about assault weapons, and a lot of that was a, a lot of similar talking points to what we've seen before. They talked about the POTUS age. And it's interesting. They said that if um, if now this I must have my facts right, but basically they were saying that you know Elizabeth Warren she's over seventy years old, and I'll tell you what she looks terrific for her age, um, you know, and, and she would be one of the older, if not the oldest, president ever inaugurated if she won the election, and that, that was interesting. That made me think about it because she gets around really, really well. Um, and then they, they, you know, they were bringing this up really mostly in light of Bernie. You know, he had the heart attack and, you know, is he fit for office? And, you know, never mind the fact that President Trump, um, is he physically fit? I, I don't think so. Um, but then Bernie pivoted and said he's going to have a big rally in Queens. He's going to have a special guest. And it's already leaked out. AOC is going to be endorsing him along with two other members of the squad. So you figure this was inevitable, right? So they're going to help try to prop up his campaign. So you see that the the pure socialists or the democratic socialists or the hardcore progressives, however you want to call them, they understand that Bernie is the true angel of that movement. And it's not Elizabeth Warren because she's deceptive, dishonest. She lies. She's immoral. Um I mean, say what you will about Bernie's policies. In, in many ways, they're also immoral. But he makes a moral case for them, which I think as a politician is really, really smart. You know, he makes a moral case for his positions where the driving reason behind Elizabeth Warren's policies is to tear down other people, to be punitive, as Beto called her out on. So, um, yeah, the, the whole thing was just a fascinating two hours and 45 minutes. Um, and I'm hopeful that we're going to see some changes in the stack ranking of these candidates as we get updates on the polls. I know Joe Biden, he's sliding uh, downhill like a, like a, like on a slippery slope, you know, his fundraising numbers came in for the third quarter and they were awful, uh, compared to a lot of his competitors. Um, I think we're going to see Biden is is going to he's going to blow up you know and i think like i said i think klobuchar and Buttigieg are are kind of on their perch waiting for that to happen and they're going to swoop into that lane um and i think you know i think klobuchar and Buttigieg, i think they're good good people they're people that i think have great integrity um i i feel the same way about andrew yang and tulsi gabbard i i like them as people um and if they're able to occupy um, that lane um, in front of Joe Biden. I think that's that'd be a great thing. Um, but at some point, it's Warren or Sanders. One of them is going to rise up and the other one will probably 
potentially be a vice presidential candidate or play some other kind of role. Again, I'm very curious about it. Originally, I thought maybe the stack ranking is wasn't going to change much, but after really letting it digest now for about 24 hours, I wouldn't be surprised if we really start seeing Biden sliding down because he still looks like he is from a time long ago, from a galaxy far, far away. Um, you can tell that he's slow um, and he'll... He, even the way he responds to these questions, he, there's like no stamina there. So um, I, I think he's going to fade. Um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that Elizabeth Warren is going to lose some traction, although some people are saying that she won the debate, um, which I thought was amazing because, you know, she took a lot of arrows. People were slinging them at her. And in my opinion, you know, when she was doing the robotic Rubio thing, but refusing to say taxes were going to go up, I just thought that was just horrible. Um, I was hoping that we we're going to see more people calling her out for that. So who knows? Maybe with this big rally with AOC and the squad, maybe we're going to see Bernie come up a couple of notches. I just think that this is fascinating. It's like like a sporting event, you know. You get to see these different racers jockeying for position, and um, so I think it's great. And we're not that far away from the first vote in Iowa, so all good. But I'll tell you what: what you saw there, you know, as much as they preach. Uh, the progressives preach for the fact that democracy is under attack. Democracy is being eroded. You see a lot of authoritarianism instead. You're, I mean, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren were both making decrees that they were going to issue executive orders to get this stuff done if Congress won't act. Well, the whole point of our democracy is that we have three branches of government and the the legislature is supposed to have, de- uh, you know, um, they're supposed to have vigorous debates and they're supposed to work these issues out and vote. And then the president is either to veto it or sign it. That's democracy in action. But instead, they want the president to be like a king, to be like a dictator and be able to do these executive orders and bypass Congress. And then they say that they're, um, you know, they, they believe that democracy is under attack. So, so much authoritarian policy from them and a hell of a lot less liberty. We did see glimpses of liberty when they were talking about women's right to choose, particularly by Cory Booker. You know, he really saw this as self-ownership of your body, which is precisely how I see this, this issue. Um, and um, I thought that was great. But this whole idea of being pro-choice, this whole idea of individual liberty seems to stop quickly. It's, it's on the abortion issue and maybe on marriage. And then after that, it's, it's not about letting individuals choose. It's about government choosing for you. Um, okay. So I don't know. When's the next debate? Is it November, December? You know, the first votes are going to be in February. So there's got to be at least one, maybe two more debates. So we'll see how this whole thing shakes out. And I'm, I, I'm calling out the, the Republicans. They need to have debates, too. Um, they've got three very qualified candidates that are running against President Trump. I remember I talked about this in the Elections Are Rigged podcast. The Republicans are not only preventing uh, Trump from participating in any, deb- any debates to protect him, they're even canceling primaries and just letting those states anoint Trump as their guy. They're, they're also eroding democracy. Um, so I'm hopeful that we're going to see some kind of a debate, but I doubt it. Um, I think Bill Weld's a good guy. And I think Bill Weld is a good candidate. And I think um, I'm, I'd like to see him do well. I think he's also following the vulture strategy. He's waiting for Trump to implode so that he can swoop in. And, and um, 
I hope that happens. I hope Trump does implode in some way. Um, but we'll see. Um, I know Trump probably won't, you know, jettison until he is, it's obvious he has no hope. It was interesting. Uh, Scaramucci was on a talk show with Dr. Ruth at, for, with some British uh, show. I saw it on YouTube. It was really interesting. Uh, Scaramucci did a really good job. I never really saw a, you know, a 15, 20-minute interview with him, but he was impressive. Um, but he predicts that Trump won't even make it to the 2020 election. He thinks the impeachment or some other thing is going to happen where it's going to be so obvious that Trump is going to lose, that Trump will um, resign because he won't want to face the fact that he lost. Because obviously, if he resigns, he'll be able to blame it on someone else. Um, so we'll see if that happens. Okay, so um, if you like what we're doing, you know, hey, follow us on Facebook, on, on Instagram, on Twitter. Um, please subscribe on the YouTube channel. We're really working hard to build up our subscription base. And if you have some comments on the video, well, write them down there in, in YouTube. And I love engaging, uh, sharing in the discussion and the conversation. Um, and then, hey, if you like, again, if you like what we're doing, um, Hey, just support us. Share this podcast with a friend. Tell them about the John Riley Project. It's a podcast about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He broadcasts from Poway, California. We talk about local issues. We talk about um, local issues in Poway, Rancho Bernardo, Carmel Mountain Ranch, Forest Ranch, Penasquito, Saber Springs. We talk about this community. We talk about issues in the greater San Diego community. We've done podcasts about Oceanside and Santee. We've covered Mayor Faulkner and a lot of the things he's working on. We cover San Diego sports. We talk sometimes about national issues like I am today. We talk about self-improvement. We talk about electric vehicles. We talk about entrepreneurism and capitalism. So a lot of things we cover in this podcast. Please share it with a friend. If you think we deserve it, leave us a five-star rating on on iTunes and, and leave a comment telling us what you think about this podcast. Um, your comments are really helpful. Um, and... Uh, you know, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. And I want to leave you with a final quote. I always do. And this one is from Billy Corgan. And, you know, Billy is the lead singer from the band Smashing Pumpkins. They were big back in the 1990s. Really good guy. And he says, calm, open debate and logical thought drive strength to its maximum effectiveness. And I love that quote. And, you know, I've talked about the, my podcast is really a community forum. This is an opportunity where we can all engage and discuss issues. I invite people to come on this podcast as a guest, and we have long-form conversations. We can discuss the issues. We can debate the issues. But like Billy Corgan said, we can do it in a calm and logical method. We can be civil. We can be rational and work through these things. And if we happen to disagree... We'll, we'll fight vigorously for our position, but at the end of the day, we'll be like Ellen and George W. Bush, and we'll still be friends, um, even if we happen to disagree. And then hopefully we'll have a better understanding of why the other person believes it the way they do, so that we can have greater empathy, greater understanding, and find better ways that we can work cooperatively in our community. And so that's a lot of what I'm trying to accomplish here. So, hey, until next time, this is John Riley. It is Wednesday, October 16th. It is episode number 82 of the John Riley Project. We're getting close to 100. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. We'll see you later. Bye-bye.